it's we've been watching with Claire Woodward and David Stevenson. What a tumultuous TV week, Claire. I hardly know what to say about it. It sort of feels as though the crown has been overtaken by real events. I don't know where I am. You've got the BBC doing itself in over the royals. You've got the royals doing themselves in on on with Prince Harry on Apple Television. Uh, the royals are the story, and considering how hard you know they do try. Oh, and, and Princess Beatrice is pregnant as well, isn't oh, she? Oh, that's so the important the one. I forgot that. And good news, but you know, for a family that likes to keep out of the press and doesn't like it, they're all over it like a rash, aren't they? Maybe secretly they've got a new PR strategy. It's a sort of black PR strategy we're not we're not aware of yet. It's just to completely plaster themselves all over the media and television until we all I don't know until we all explode. I mean, but the thing is the viewing figures. I haven't seen the viewing figures yet for some of it, but um, it'll be interesting if things like uh, Harry's Apple TV uh, launch gets a good audience because it launched overnight in America, and whether people are bothered with another streamer, who knows? But we'll we'll see. So we'll have a chat then about Panorama, the Diana interview, the uh, the Thursday night, BBC One, actually, in the end. Um, the packed BBC One, the new drama set in a brewery um, in <laughs> Wales on Monday. Innocent, which went up against, was the Battle of the Thrillers. Oh, my God, that's a dangerous precedent. Um, uh, inside number nine, because I know you really like it so much, we'll talk about that again. That was out on Monday. And Eurovision is back, the semi-finals of Eurovision, which we've watched already. So uh, there we are. You can't beat what a lineup for this week. It's glorious, isn't it? I mean, and also it's the second part of Gods of Snooker, which is great to see Steve interesting Davis gradually become more interesting as he's managed properly. So Absolutely. maybe the rules should take a lesson from that. Yes, the gods with Barry Hearn, who created them. I mean, I think he's the god of snooker, really, and they're the underlings. But anyway, so Panorama. Um, Panorama on Panorama. When I first saw this in the listings, I thought it was a bit of a joke, really. I mean, I don't know whether we're to take it as a parody, but we're now looking for guidance from Panorama on their own show that has now been utterly and completely discredited. I mean, it was quite compelling in a way just to look at John Ware's face, wasn't it? Which just this was sort of slightly. <laughs> I, think, I think the word a, a picture of incredulity applies here, doesn't it? I know, and he got more incredulous as the episode went on, and he sort of huddled there in his barber coat as the revelations became more sensational by the minute. I mean, did you enjoy it or not? Well, I don't think enjoy is the right word, really, is it? Because, you know, there's so many questions that are raised. But, I mean, it's almost like the BBC is, you know, flagellating itself after Jimmy Savile, isn't it? You know, they're, they're very keen to get out there with the apologies now. But, you know, frankly, it, it, it's too far too late now. It is, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, to do apologies to people 26 years after the event... It's just a little bit late. I mean, you could consider that uh, rude, really. I mean, it was astonishing. I suppose the TV event that clips that was actually Prince William making his statement straight into a television camera. Now, that is unusual. I mean, normally the royals post something on Twitter or, or probably Instagram is the, is the chosen social media. And so he spoke straight down the barrel of the camera. And that was incredibly emotional after the panorama uh, documentary, I thought. Well, you wouldn't want to be Nicholas Witchell, would you, the BBC's royal correspondent, because, you know, he's probably just a bit flip the bird on every public uh, public uh, event that he attends. But, you know, 
you've got both brothers now that they, they might not speak to each other but they're both sort of united in the fact that the media killed their mother yeah um, absolutely i mean the and, you know, just, sorry go on no so which is going to make it difficult for harry isn't it because harry wants to be a tv producer so riding one horse with two assholes as my mother used to say <laughs> that's sounding very uncomfortable for both animals <laughs> <laughs> Um, the only person missing, of course, in all of this and who hasn't told his story and probably never will is Martin Bashir. I mean, I wonder whether he's planning a big interview. Maybe Oprah will do him next week. He'll probably fly to America and be welcomed into the fold over there. I mean, it is That's brilliant. Talk about the very definition of TV will eat itself. That That is it. And I just find it ironic that he then became the royal editor. I'm not sorry. The religion I find editor. it ironic he became the religion editor of the BBC and at the end of Panorama you can see him sat uh, interviewing the Archbishop of Canterbury still wearing his bicycle clips and a coat. I mean that's not very respectful is it? Maybe that's a sign of his slapdash journalism well, but you know he got the great he's got great interviews. He put the whole thing together himself. I mean I just find it extraordinary. I was talking to a contact about this and how you would go how you would go towards actually concocting these bank statements. It's the sort of thing that an MI5 operative would do, really. I mean, that's that's what spies normally use. I mean, is it the sort of thing you, you know, down the old Kent Road in a pub, you'd get someone to do? I mean, it is extraordinary that <laughs> he's managed well, to run this up himself. Yeah, well, it's extraordinary that he used that graphic designer who who then gone who'd gone freelance from the BBC to work for the BBC and then never worked for the BBC again because of what he'd done for Martin, you know, Martin Bashir. It's just an absolute shit show. It really is. And it, you know, it all the program was done very much undercover, wasn't it? Very much behind, you know, the scenes. No one else in Panorama knew what this special program was. Um, it's. I mean, we all know, we're all journalists, we all know that sometimes things have to be done very undercover, but now we know why this was done very undercover. You know, it was fairly immoral stuff. Yeah, and I mean, it is it is a shame that people like Steve Hewlett, who had a fantastic reputation, are now having that sort of uh, dragged asunder. Uh, but then he did say when I think Harry Dean, who was the deputy editor of Panorama, asked him, and you know, it was basically mind your fucking business, wasn't it? So, mm. um, I mean, he can't speak for himself, Diana can't speak for herself about it, but in the end, she wanted to get these issues out there, and I think it, people people wanted to hear her side of the story after the Jonathan Dimbleby interview. I mean, there's another interview that we don't really see. And we're probably not going to see this one again. Ah, oh, there's a string mm. of royal. There's a string of royal shows that you'll never see again, aren't there? There'll be some sort of deep archive of these videos. There'll be um, the royals, the original Prince Philip reality show that you remember. I know. Um, well, I mean, is that the irony? That was the lovely ro royal show that we saw. You know, them barbecuing and Prince Edward going to get an ice cream at the corner shop. We can't see that now. We can't see the worst things. I mean, who would want to be doing the royals PR now? I mean, uh, get rid of them. I say for their own sake. You know, if this well, is a, what happens when you're a royal, it's it's not nice, is it? It's a Republican's dream, but I suppose you, in a way, it's a TV makers dream as well because you turn on a tv camera in front of any of them and it's great television we wouldn't have thought i mean i know we joked about the kardashians initially when harry and megan did their first show but really i mean it this is 
fantastic it's a bit of a horror show at the moment but it is fantastic reality tv if anyone dared ever make it mm, uh, but i mean the thing with harry's show harry and Meghan's show uh, with oprah it just seems to me i haven't seen it but it's very much you know, let's talk about our mental health but it's not offering any solutions i mean you know the, those of us old enough to remember that's life on the bbc remember things like you know childline and all the campaigning they did they offered it was television offering a solution it, it was that bit more than consumer journalism this just seems to be people saying i'm really depressed i'm having a you know lady gaga having a tough time which is great because she can afford some psychotherapy, but most people have to wait for the NHS. You know, it's all very well opening these floodgates, but not offering any more, I think is disingenuous. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And I mean, really, you shouldn't be taking a lot of money for it either. I mean, these are very serious issues. And if you're going to treat them seriously on television, um, there shouldn't be a whole surrounding of celebrity in order to do it i mean i don't really get that i mean let's what about some more ordinary people and take them into the fold and uh and talk them through i mean the whole thing of him sharing every single part of his own being is just too much isn't it you know talk about keep it private that whole, whole thing has gone out the window i know but Mm. You want to keep some of this back. Where does where does it all end for him and Megan? That's what I don't understand. I mean, once you've trawled through everything in your past life that you believe may have affected your mental health genuinely or not, where do you go from there? Do you just sit at the camera, right, we've said everything now, and then we go to black? Well, it's like someone once said to me about Jade Goody, you know, when I was trying to get a column from Jade Goody as an exclusive somewhere I was working, they said, well, you know, we can't offer her as an exclusive because she has to go everywhere else to, you know, to make money, you know, sell different stories to different papers. And are Meghan and Harry any better than that? You know, they are selling their lives for personal consumption. And talking about, um, you know, the sins of the fathers being wrought on the sons, is Harry not doing that to his own children in the future? You know, they will have their lives. They will what they will want their kids' lives to be protected. But having spilt their own guts, it's ridiculous. It is. I mean, it's interesting because I saw a TV news piece about the children and about what was going to happen with them growing up in California. And someone was pointing out that they wouldn't be recognised and people wouldn't know who they were. But that's absolutely ludicrous. Everyone will know who they are in America. And you're right. These sins will be visited on the children and they'll have to go through that lifestyle. And we had the whole thing in the week as well about Harry completely messing up what the, the amendments and the freedom of the press meant in America. I mean, that's just, uh, is he some strange puppet that we're not aware of? Well, you know, allegedly he's not very bright, is he? And I mean, the thing is, he must be surrounded by top level PR people. You know, we know, we know it's like a journalist trying to get an interview with a Hollywood star is virtually impossible and they say nothing, but they still get on the cover of the magazine. Um, but Harry just seems to be able to say anything he likes. Um, and regardless of whether he looks an idiot or not, I mean, if they are paying for PR advice, I think they should ask for their money back. <laughs> yeah, so sack the agent, Harry, and uh, well done to John Ware for not looking <laughs> too direly depressed about everything <laughs> to do with Panorama. Um, probably four stars for Panorama just because you were just hanging on every word to find out what on earth had gone on and why this interview had got done in the way it had been done. 
So four stars for me. I don't know about you, Claire. Uh, well, I'll give it four. I mean, I would rather it hadn't happened, really. It's one of those programmes. But, you know, I was glad the BBC had put their hands up, but the BBC are in dire straits at the moment. I think they only need one more major problem like this, and that's it for them. Yeah, trust is a big issue for them now, isn't it? Right, well, let's have a talk about the Battle of the Thrillers, the pact on BBC One um, and Innocent on ITV. Um, both stripped over the first two nights. I think they were clashed on the first two nights, but then ran out over the week. Innocent did anyway. Um, pact was set in a brewery. Innocent was set in in the lake district Keswick. wasn't it yeah in Keswick, Keswick yeah. I, I mean the lakes is a is a sort of they both looked the sort of same didn't they the way it went you know we we're down in the Welsh woodlands and 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 mooching about in there with bodies and forensic teams and then we had Keswick as well in the lakes so we had a sort of battle of the natural environments I mean did you find them <laughs> compelling um I found them beige frankly I found them um <laughs> I, I sort of watched uh, the pack all in one go last night and I've watched Innocent today and I my mind was going which one is which um they both feature I mean you know the pact is a is a is a uh, sort of you know who done it murder thing and Innocent is a woman who is found uh, innocent so was it says five years for a crime oh, and then found innocent they're trying to find the real murderer but I just found them beige as I say not compelling and I think you know two hour you know two hour episodes for each would have done me very nicely but it was odd that they were kind of stripped throughout the week again going really going head to head because I think if you'd been trying to watch both of them you'd have been hard pressed to see to remember which was which and which channel you were watching. I mean the irony for me was that um you had a the, the four women in the brewery who'd um they couldn't organise a piss up in one, could they? They couldn't organise no. a piss up, and they certainly couldn't organise a murder. I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they left their boss drunken and full of coke in the the woods. I mean, that reminded me of an unforgotten episode, but told backwards because because un, unforgotten is normally about a group of people, and then you work your way through the episodes to find, you know, how they're responsible mm. for this. Whereas yeah. this was, you knew these were the four people, and they. Had done something. Um, of course, I haven't seen the the rest of it, so I don't know. But you can happily spoil it for me if you like, Claire. But um, <laughs> and the other, of course, Innocence, written by Chris Lang. So the whole thing was quite bizarre. I mean, I found the first episode of Innocent a little bit dull. I mean, it might have just been me, but it, the first episode ended with a couple sort of shagging on the stairs before he'd had any dinner. I thought that was ridiculous. <laughs> Probably didn't want. <laughs> <laughs> didn't want to do it on a full stomach, did he? Um, I mean, I, th I know this is the second series of Innocent, isn't it? And I didn't see the first one. So I started watching the second and I thought, oh, it's a continuation of the last series. And and it isn't. But confusingly, you, you would think it was. I know that was, um, the, that was uh, a silly trick, was it, to drag people in? I thought that was disingenuous because they're not they're not linked. They're self-contained stories, um, aren't they? But... I think the yeah. pack was probably the, the pick of it for me because it sort of didn't take itself too seriously. And it also had Jason Hughes, who was Jones in Midsummer Murders. So 
I mean, the sort of likable husband who is sort of put on notice for promotion. If you if you do well on this case, we'll take you out of uniform and you can be a detective. So he must have had some sort of TV reference from Tom Barnaby or something. <laughs> He'd obviously fallen yes, on right. hard times in Wales and become a uniform policeman. And then they're sort of now dragging him out. I mean, I'm going completely sort of meta and off piece here, but you know, it was, well, I mean, it was a great. I, I, it was I, a... You find your enjoyment where you can, don't you? Well, exactly. And, but it was an interesting male cast as well as, you know, the sort of female leads because there was Eddie Marsan in it and Adrian Edmondson playing a very low key um, character of the husband. Um, I mean, I, I, I just had to keep it was almost like a blink and you'll miss it role. Yeah, I, I think he's a very that. good actor. I know I didn't get the, the cast was much better. Laura Fraser was very good. I thought she sort of held it all together. Bumbling Jason Hughes, as I say, quite likable, and you, you, I was following him along the way. And then Aid Edmondson with a black eye or a bad eye, and I don't know, you know, was there an abusive relationship going on? There's a bit too much. There's a bit too much potential plot lying in the undergrowth, wasn't there? You just waiting mm, for stuff mm. to come out. I mean, That's I will have. I mean, we will get to see. We will get to see the end of it. Although you, it, we, we all went up on. I played it. Yes, it did. Um, and I think it was six episodes, which for me was one or two too many. Um, I, I just think, I, I, know, I, I know we all love stories, but I just think there's too much storytelling. But um, somebody put on Twitter this week that they wish there was a Netflix category of films that don't show women getting murdered. And I agreed with that. And I agree that there are too many murder and police procedurals um that all seemed to be the same which was the pact and innocent for me this week but now also we have i mean you talk about women being the victims i mean i think women are increasingly the perpetrators as well i mean so women this is i mean again this is probably a marketing exercise let's be cynical about this <laughs> you know the tv channels going well just well, let's just make lots of dramas for women about women as murderers and victims. And I mean, that's sort of what we had in both of these. I mean, so yeah, it's, the ultimate, it's the ultimate nightmare all around, isn't it? You know, how often, well, I don't dream it, but you wake up in the morning and you may have murdered somebody. You know, this is played <laughs> out on this is played out on the small screen, isn't it? You know. Let's move and on to inside. Was... Well, let's move on to inside number nine. Your favourite program, Claire. Oh, my favourite blokey old program. Yes. Whatever. I mean, I've only written down one note on this week's episode because I was away for the night and I wrote it down, and it was super fan. It, it did it, the whole super fan world. I think is absolutely fascinating. I suppose, in a way, um, there's nothing much more to say about them. They're just absolutely obsessed with the program and they want to meet everybody involved. They want to be the actors, they want to be the writer. And it's sometimes it, well, in the imagination of Pemberton and Reese Shearsmith, it ends up being a tragedy. Yeah, I mean, I, I find it, I find it very interesting actually, thinking it's almost uh, the guys that write it, they're almost biting the hand that feeds them because, you know, they are, they, you know, the programs they make are sort of super fan programs that, that super fans like. So, you know, when this uh, when this guy comes along and he can sort of sleep in the spare bedroom, he says, oh, is that the one that you keep the head of some monster from some drama you've been in? And it's 
they're commenting on how heavy the national television awards are and how how you could bash someone in the head with them and kill them quite easily i mean it was it was quite self-referential i thought well it was but i think maybe this is going to be the the, the most self-referential series of inside number nine which is probably on the off the scale really but it did remind me of a writer of science fiction who got very that i won't name who got very drunk at a party once and chased me around the room and wanted to box me so I, and it, it, <laughs> oh i know who that was be yes, really unfair 25000 pounds of brown envelope <laughs> feel who it is yes <laughs> and in the end he did it in the end he did apologize but i think in a room where uh, there's lots of people thronging around writers who become you know these sort of superhuman people that can hang on to these series for you know six or seven seasons um you get you get fans around that are that are absolutely obsessed with them I, well four stars again for me because i absolutely love, i was completely compelled watching this thing in a hotel room i thought my goodness me that doesn't happen very often so four stars probably four and a half there we are good god and i'm still going with three but i mean i just want it i i want to like it that's the thing i want to like it more but hey It'll happen, I'll bore you into submission, anywhere. Yeah, okay. So Eurovision was back in the semi-finals, which I thought were really interesting and entertaining to watch compared with the big series on Saturday night, but um, they were sort of slightly pared down in a way, and, and I appreciated the voting, which was over in next to no time. Oh, well, this is the thing everyone hates. I mean, you know, Eurovision, I've got lots of friends who are Eurovision fans. I've actually been to Eurovision myself, so I kind of understand the excitement. And it's the voting that kills it every time. That and us never winning as, as you know, as the UK. Um, so I'm just delighted to see speed voting. It was incredible, wasn't it? The, the voting was sort of over in no time at all. And then it was announced. But of course, when it goes out on the Saturday night, the voting takes up a full hour. So the programme would be cut by a quarter, wouldn't it? Well, you could always fill it with uh, now some music, some proper music. No, 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 I don't mean that. But um, I mean, the thing is, the thing about Eurovision that not a lot of people know is that they have a full run through uh, show before the real Eurovision. So on a Friday night in Rotterdam, they'll be having like a run through show, which I've been to. You know, so I've seen in Vienna Conchita verse flying through the audience, but it not being broadcast. So effectively, they've done it all. And I'm sure that the panels throughout the countries know who they're going to vote for anyway. So they can just say, you know, UK nil point and, 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 and so on rather more quickly. But hey, it's nice to be able to see the semi-finals, though. Yeah, um, particularly as we got to see Italy, who were so rock and roll and a bit sexy and, and have got through to the final. There They're my favourite for this of, year. There were a couple of sort of rock style acts, weren't there? Mm. I mean, I, I like to see them, but, it, but it's really the sort of comedy acts, whether they're intentional or not, that, I, that I'm just sitting there just waiting for. You know, the, the Russian, the Russian uh, entry, who... I think that was meant to be a whole feminist thing, a sort of doll's house or literally in a Russian doll and breaking out of the Russian doll. I really liked that because it was funny and had a, quite a decent message to it. Um, but, but this is where we fall down, I think. And again, I'm told by my friends who know more about Eurovision than me. 
we fail as the UK on presentation. You know, you're talking about this amazing Russian presentation and ours is just some guys with horns in the background who are misses. But, um, you know, we remember things like, the was it, was it the Poles or the Russians where they had the singing grannies doing the laundry a few years back? Oh, I loved that. I thought that was fantastic. The milkmaids, yes, that was all Yes, exactly. Um, and... You know, but we need to do better. You know, we are, a, you know, the BBC, despite the kicking we give it, can still do good stuff. And, you know, Eurovision is still hugely popular. You know, Eurovision or Gay Christmas, as we call it around these parts. <laughs> I was completely obsessed with the very tall presenter who was sort of, well, I was saying head and shoulders above the rest. I mean, she literally was. <laughs> um, oh, we, had, we, we always have sort of four presenters who seem sort of slightly disengaged, or is that they've got a different attitude to presenting than we have? Our, our presenters at shows like that are, hello, here we are, you know, this is fantastic, we're having a brilliant time. Whereas there's a little bit, sometimes they can be a bit understated on the continent, can't they? I think so. I mean, I think, you know, the, the country that, that does Eurovision best is Sweden, um, where they are full of pomp and excitement and um they make they still make a really big go of um the sort of heats that select the song which is called melody festival and and that is a big <coughs> excuse me um melody festival and is a big saturday night show in sweden you know it's a massive event for choosing these songs whereas our entry tends to sort of you know slip out like a recalcitrant fart um sometimes exactly um and i mean i think people would like i mean i would love to still love to know who chooses our euro song it's very much kept under the under wraps but i would love to know who's responsible for finally choosing the, the song um that's a meeting, yeah. isn't it, down in the sort of local pub somewhere near the sort of langham hotel or something in central london the bbc get together for 10 minutes so, i mean it, it it's weird because we go from one thing to another don't we sometimes we have um a, a voting choice and then sometimes we mm. don't they make a big thing out of it sometimes we've had a series haven't we we've had yes exactly i mean of, six weeks of choosing and going oh we haven't even yeah you know so the selection process has been longer than the show itself by a long way but but what what do you do with it have you but you're better off sort of we don't we, we don't know whether to take it seriously or not. That's the basic thing, isn't it? Well, I mean, I, I think we should, I think Eurovision is essentially a very good thing because just to you know, I would recommend that anybody who can go should because the atmosphere in the cities is so exciting and there's a real feeling of fellowship when you go to these Euro events. You know, it really is quite something. But you know, when you look at the songs that we uh, we turn in we're not going to have that back in the UK anytime now um, which I think is rather sad because it has become political voting you know particularly with the Eastern European states um, in and you know we, we, we just can't rely on Holland to vote for the UK every year anymore. But if they disliked us so much we've gone now anyway so surely they'll start to like us again we'll be perhaps this year will be we'll be the underdog year. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do hope so. I mean, you know, we are still part of the European Broadcasting Union, aren't we, for, for some reason. Um, is your European Broadcasting Union really necessary? So we, we still qualify for Eurovision. But it's interesting, I think, that America is going to do its own song contest. It's just going to be like Eurovision, but with a song uh -huh. from each state. 
52 of the bloody things, can you imagine? Can't we but, be in it, because um, we're like the 53rd state anyway. <laughs> we are almost, well, it's a bit like Australia joining yeah, totally. the Zone Contest, won't it? So, are you rooting for the Australian entry this year, David? I think the Australian entry didn't get through. It looked at it. I mean, oh, I think oh. it was called, it was called, I mean, terrible joke. I mean, it was called Technicolor. And all I could think about is the term in Australia, Technicolor yawn, which has got nothing to do with singing at all. <laughs> on, that, on that wonderful <laughs> that note. Yes, we can talk about Eurovision next week and we will go and have a will, bit and see who wins. And so on that note, thank you very much, Claire. That's been wonderful. And happy viewing and hopefully not too much royal viewing who knows there'll be a, there'll be another royal program around the corner very soon <laughs>